0: Right, what what's the brand name of this this medication? Uh, lup, lupkinis, L-U-P-K-Y-N-I-S. I thought it's Lupkinis, but it's Lupkinis. Kindis. Yeah,
1: Lupkinis. Yeah. Lupkinis. We're all trying to get sweatshirts out of this. We'll keep saying the name over and over again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, and for the listeners, that's not true. We're not trying to get any swag from any pharma company. Josh's wife works for pharma. He can't help himself, right? <laughs> to Freelitha, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Talk, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we have four members of the filtrate. Swap?
0: Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I don't have any conflicts except to say that I'm not a GN expert. I tweet at hswapnil.
2: Nayan?
3: My name is Nayan Aurora. No relation to the trial. I am a nephrologist at the University of Washington in Seattle. I tweet at Captain Chloride. I have no conflicts of interest, and I'm also not a GN expert, so this might be the last time you guys hear me for the rest of this episode. Josh? Hi, I'm Josh Waitsman. Uh, by the time this
1: airs, I will be an instructor of nephrology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. I tweet at Jay Waits. I am a third non-GN expert, although I like to have discussions with my GN expert friends, and I love podocytes. Uh, I tweet at Jay Waits, and I have no conflicts of interest uh, related to this episode.
4: Jenny? My name is Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist and adult nephrologist at Northwestern University. I have no conflicts of interest for this discussion, and I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. So you can tell that
2: none of us have any great expertise in uh, lupus or GNs, and so we are bringing back our GN sharpshooters, our lupus nephritis experts. We met these people back in February when they came and joined us for the BLISS trial. They were excellent then. We are delighted to reintroduce Dr. Alfred Kim, assistant professor at Washington University, and he is a rheumatologist. Hold your jeers; He's actually very good. Alfred?
5: Yeah, so Al Kim, adult rheumatologist at Washington University, as you said, assistant professor and also physician scientist. At, and I also direct the lupus clinic here. And I do have conflicts of interest. I do receive consulting and other personal fees from Arrhenia Pharmaceuticals, who makes vocal sporn or lupkinus. But you can still follow me on Twitter at Al H. Kim.
2: Excellent. And Dawn Castor at the University of Louisville. She's an assistant professor and a nephrologist. Dawn?
6: Yeah, thank you so much. I'm Dawn Castor, an adult nephrologist at the University of Louisville. I run our glomerular disease clinic. I also conduct translational research in glomerular diseases primarily in lupus nephritis. And I do have conflicts of interest here. I was actually an author on the paper. I was site PI for the Aurora trial here at University of Louisville. I also get consulting fees as well as I'm on the Speakers Bureau for Arrhenia. I will be using my own opinions here. So while I do have those conflicts of interest to uh, disclose, everything here is of my opinion and not influenced by Arrhenia.
2: Thank you. Lupus nephritis is a difficult disease to monitor and treat. One of the reasons it's so difficult is without a biopsy, we have little sense of how it is progressing. We can try to look at disease activity through serum creatinine and proteinuria, but protocol biopsies have shown that patients with complete remission can have histologic evidence of ongoing active inflammation, and patients with high-grade proteinuria can have no histologic evidence of disease activity. We teach our fellows this and emphasize that you can't trust the lab and to keep an open mind about repeat biopsies in patients with lupus nephritis. But when it comes to our drug trials, we seem to forget this wisdom and accept changes in proteinuria as proof of effectiveness. It wasn't always like this. In the 80s, the NIH did a series of long-term studies on lupus nephritis that defined cyclophosphamide as standard of care. Average follow-up for those patients was seven years. And you don't have to go back to leg warmers and Ronald Reagan to get long-term follow-up. The Lupus nephritis trial comparing high-dose versus low-dose cyclophosphamide was published in 2009 and had 10 years of follow-up. Both urolupus and the NIH trials use doubling of serum creatinine and dialysis as hard endpoints. But somehow we think we are somehow smarter now and are trying to get away with short trials using changes in proteinuria as the primary outcome. We saw this with the Ballist trial of Balilumep, and we are seeing it again with the Aurora trial of aclosporin. The methods will talk about complete remission and using a composite outcome of kidney function dialysis and proteinuria, but by enrolling patients with intact GFRs and randomizing them for only one year in the case of Voclosporin and two years in the case of Belilumab, these patients do not trip GFR endpoints and we're evaluating these drugs solely on their effect on proteinuria. Maybe this will work out, but recent meta-analyses have shown increasing rates of ESRD with lupus nephritis. It doesn't bode well. Okay, Don. Can you help us out? Tell us what you did to become an author of this trial. Big deal, Lancet publication. But how were you involved in the trial?
6: So my primary involvement in the trial was as a site PI. As a site PI. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, okay. So I, I had several patients enrolled in the clinical trial.
2: But you didn't. You didn't design the trial. You weren't evaluating the outcomes, adjudicating anything like that. No,
6: I was not. I did review. You know the. The paper and gave some feedback, but my primary role was as a site PI.
2: Excellent. Okay, okay. And and Don, this drug is now approved. Is that right? Yes, it is. They both are. Use it. (laughs) Have you used it in an unblinded fashion? I have. I have. Tell us a little bit about using the drug.
6: So I think that in my experience, I have a lot of patients. About two thirds of my lupus population is African American, and. I know because I have a biorepository, actually a large portion of my lupus population has what I would define as mixed lesions. So either a class three plus five and a class four plus five lesion. So really come into the disease with a really high amount of proteinuria and often are resistant to traditional therapies. Although I would say with the Uh, complete remission rates of less than 50%, even in these clinical trials. Most lupus nephritis patients are resistant to standard of care therapy. So I have used this in recent months in patients that were on standard of care, but not getting the decline in pertinuria that I wanted.
2: And when you say standard of care, when you get a new onset lupus patient, just walk me through your, your, your typical, it's a class three or it's a class four <laughs> and they got proteinuria and they got intact renal function. What's your standard of care? What is the Dawncaster special?
6: So a lot of patients come to me with preexisting disease, but when you get a patient that's fresh, I would say the most common combination of therapy would be corticosteroids and MMF for me to use personally. Now, I still use cyclophosphamide.
2: Hydroxychloroquine, you oh. caught me on that last podcast, and I'm never going to forget that. <laughs> oh, my, absolutely. But it's well, still, still hot from that. <laughs>
6: blockade. Yeah, hydroxychloroquine, Raspocade. For, RAS for blockade. Dawn,
2: that's just oxygen, right?
6: <laughs> yeah. those, have just, those have already been done. I mean, come on. No, but for, for actual immunosuppressive therapy, I typically go to MMF because my patients are typically young women and they want. Fertility preserved. There are a variety of reasons I might choose cyclophosphamide instead in some patients, but I'd say at least three quarters are probably getting MMF initially.
1: And, Don, when you give folks MMF, do you have a target dose in mind that you're shooting for? In the OMS (laughs) trial, mostly folks are shooting for about two and a half to three grams, it looks like.
6: So, anywhere between two and three grams.
2: And so let me just ask, do you titrate it based on effect? fact that if they're not getting a good effect at two grams, do you pop it up to three? Is that kind of so what
6: you're looking at? A lot of times titration is limited by side effects as well as leukopenia. So it is not uncommon to never get to three grams because a patient has significant GI side effects or has significant leukopenia. And that's where I think a multi-targeted approach can be very helpful as far as going at the immune system in different ways with a different side effect profile. So ultimately, hopefully, the patient will experience less side effects and a more effective treatment. Al,
2: what's the Dr. Kim approach to a fresh lupus nephritis patient?
5: Uh, Very similar to what Don has said. Uh, I think the only thing I would add is I probably use a fair amount of rituximab. I do like a lot of B-cell depletors, especially for African-Americans. The data, the the phase three data suggested it may be helpful. Obviously, nothing was followed through. But anecdotally, we do have quite a bit of success with that. And the reason why um, that becomes an option is about 70% of our lupus patients are uh, non-concordant with uh, their medications and is challenging right you're taking 6 tabs a day and we're going to bring this issue up in the future about pill burden with uh, voclosporin but this is obviously a barrier to uh, implementation. And so as a result, sometimes they just want to get the IV because it's a much easier schedule on them. So I would say that, especially for African-Americans, about, yeah, about half of de novo, I would do first-line RETOX after discussion with them, about half with mycophenolate. I tend to, with whites, stick more with cyclophosphamide. And then if, if they fail that first level, then it becomes a mishmash about what the next step is with a higher emphasis in cyclophosphamide.
2: Al, just help me out. The rituximab replaces MMF, or it is an addition to
5: MMF? I use it as a replacement. I I know that, like in Europe, for example, they use ritux with cyclophosphamide. So I think there's a lot of ways you could dice this up. I've just been normalized to think this way, which may not be correct. But I can certainly sound right and make it correct for a lot of people. It's a podcast.
2: That's all that counts. (laughs) Don, how are you using rituximab in your clinic?
6: So I use it more in refractory patients or if there's a major side effect issues. You know, I'm all about as many tools as I can have. So it's not that I don't use rituximab. I I think there's limited data on it for first-line therapy. So I reserve it as either add-on therapy for resistant patients or in the setting of they didn't tolerate this, they didn't tolerate that. Well, Mm -hmm. there's always vitamin R.
1: And then, since belimumab has been approved, are you using that in your induction approach to any of these patients, or is that something you really reserve for more refractory folks?
6: So, I can pipe in there. I've used belimumab as well. So, they actually studied it in the setting of the urolupus cytoxin regimen. So, anyone I have that's getting urolupus cytotoxic, I'm much more likely to use belimumab because, of course, Raloxifene was not studied in that therapy. So again, I'm all about having as many tools as possible. Certainly, they hit the immune system in different ways. I think in my you know class four or five patient that has six, seven, eight grams of proteinuria, I'm going to try to use something. Use all
1: the things you've got in the arsenal, by <laughs> yeah, you but yeah, but you're throwing the kitchen sink at that.
6: But I think there's some more evidence that a calcineurin inhibitor would have a more protein lowering effect than than mab, But that's that's just the way I, I do things. But I'm actually surprised, Al, that you're using rituximab first line. That's really...
5: I mean, we, I, we get a lot of pushback, even within our other rheumatologists here. And they're, they're like, well, that's sloppy. It failed the phase three clinical trials. And while that is true, how you interpret that based off of the limitations of the study is really up to the user's discretion. So... I I still think that it works quite well, especially I think African Americans are largely driven through B cell with other immune processes collectively. And it seems like that B cell modulation seems to be sufficient for a great majority of them. And that's really the reason why I gravitate to that. So,
3: What's your typical steroid regimen with that, with all of these? (laughs)
5: <laughs> it's a lot more aggressive now than before. I mean, Donna and I have been talking about this You know, at, at times. You know, it's just, I, I think we're all trained to wean it off pretty slowly over months as an outpatient, right? But really my own particular goal, especially if we see them as an, I see them as an inpatient is I'm going to try to get them down to five milligrams in about four to six weeks. That's my own personal goal, which is hard. And it's certainly not standard, but I really do buy into the massive amount of emerging data And some older data from Michelle Petrie, Eric Moran down in Australia, really showing that anything above five milligrams is is bad. And Eric Moran has a Lancet Rheumatology paper that shows that even you go from like zero to one milligram, there's an 8% increased likelihood of having organ damage, all due to steroids, even if you adjust for disease activity. So that is really pretty damning All right, And there's data now in rheumatoid arthritis demonstrating this uh, similar thing. So again, the culture that we were brought up in, like, oh, yeah, we have to wean it off. But that was more words than action. I think now we're really trying to push the action part much more aggressively. And we probably are going to be surprised with how well people are going to do with this.
3: I'm taking notes because that's much faster than I do
5: it. I'll just throw this little note out here, though. And this is something that we just got burned with. Uh, about 10% of lupus patients don't have 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. So this is the enzyme that takes prednisone and endogenous cortisol and turns it into an active glucocorticoid. So that is about 10% of our patients. So we've had some people who, on prednisone 60 who just haven't done well. We convert them over to much lower dose methylpred, oral methylpred, and they do much better. Of note, the mice that have this enzyme knocked out, they get a lupus-like syndrome, which is interesting.
2: Okay.
0: Let's get started. Swap, let's talk methods. Yeah, this all seems like black magic. That's why I could not be a GN expert. You know, it's, it's B cells and T cells and you, you make up stuff.
2: <laughs> it's it's- B-cells all the way down. Isn't that how, how
0: Exactly. dare exactly. you? So, so we, exactly. Haven't even, we haven't even talked about complement. <laughs> exactly.
1: Very few people say they went into nephrology for the immunology. It's like exactly. not a thing that people They actually say, say the same thing about rheumatology. They I'm say it, it for lie. rheumatology. They don't say it for <laughs> nephrology.
0: Yeah. The B-cells all the way down, I remember from the last podcast, it was like, it's not the B-cells that matter. It's the CD20 B-cells. And it's not the CD20 B-cells that matter, but it's the naive CD20 B-cells. And maybe it's not the naive cd20b cells but you know some immature naive cd20b cells whatever it just keeps going all the way down to some sub 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 population yeah
2: i would recommend listeners go back and listen to that bliss podcast it's pretty good it's a nice discussion it'll get you oriented pretty well for lupus but okay yeah. Let's talk Aurora 1.
0: Aurora 1. So this was, it's a global multicenter trial, 142 centers, 27 countries, you know, almost all continents, Europe, Africa, Asia. And you will see that they had patients from everywhere. Uh, in terms of patient populations, this is where things get interesting very fast. So you have class 3, 4, or 5, either alone or on combination uh, of lupus nephritis with a diagnosis being made in the last two years. And how do you decide if the patients are active disease? So this was just on the basis of having proteinuria. So that's the first interesting part. So they had to have a UPCR more than or equal to 1.5. I guess that's about roughly 1.5 grams. But if they had isolated class 5, then it had to be 2. So a little bit more proteinuria. And if the biopsy... Sorry, uh, sorry
1: Swapnil, just to jump in for a sec, the, the class 3, 4, or 5 decision on what to grade the pathology, was that done by a central pathology lab or was that done by a local hospital pathologist?
0: I think it was the local pathologist as far as I know. And Don can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So
6: when we enrolled patients, we we put in what their classification was based on the biopsy, and they did require a recent biopsy in most cases. So you're probably getting to that.
0: <laughs> Yeah, and Josh, you're asking the question because there's a lot of variation. In there's it.
1: a lot of inner observer variation on what class of lupus people have. It's hard even for non-expert renal pathologists like all of us to figure out what kind of lupus nephritis someone has by looking at their biopsy. But even if you have two expert renal pathologists look at the same biopsy, they may have different reads on it with pretty significant variation. So I just don't know
2: does if, it, in, how does that include approach that. Between one and two and three, four, five, right? Like I thought like three and four, yeah, you can see...
1: It's
6: 50%. So if they're 40 and 60, you could.
1: Yeah. Uh, so three versus four, that's an easy, yeah, like, make a choice one way or the but other. The, but the
2: question is, is it the other significant difference between two and three? And, and that's a
1: question I don't know the answer to as well.
6: I will say, too, just to add, the way the patients were stratified was pure class five were randomized separately. And then if you had any proliferative lesion, so if you were three, four, or some combination, those were randomized in their own group. So it was either pure class 5 or some form of proliferative, which I think there's a lot of variation in what people consider class 5 because you can have a few scattered subepithelial deposit, but that doesn't make you a class 5. But anyway, so hopefully that variability was taken out because I think pure class 5 is pretty different than if you have a proliferative lesion. But yeah, it was it was site-specific. Pathology
0: right and as Don alluded to the if the biopsy was uh, it had to be in the last six months but if it was uh, a biopsy which was older than six months then they had to have a doubling of proteinuria in the last six months while well they were screened so if, if it's a nine month old biopsy then in the last six months there proteinuria had to double to show that there is something active going on and i guess this is partly because in lupus proteinuria doesn't mean activity you know someone can have burnt out sort of lupus and scarring and and they can just have proteinuria as a result of that so this kind of having a biopsy in the last six months or an increasing in proteinuria is sort of a reasonable take, I guess, uh, to say that they're having active lupus, but Joel doesn't like this.
2: No, I just want to say, not to tip the hat, but in the end, 90% of the patients had a biopsy in the last six months. Like They did have an, a, an allowance for l- older biopsies, but it just didn't, the, people didn't end up using that to get enrolled
6: but in this trial. I think the biopsies, and correct me if I'm wrong, even if it was older, it could, I mean, it wasn't like five years, it was within two years. It had to be within two years, yeah. but, but
2: it, if it was late, older than six months, then they also had to have this increasing proteinuria.
0: And then the a uh, couple of other interesting criteria are that the GFR had to be more than 45. So that's sort of what Joel alluded in the introduction is, is these are patients with pretty well-preserved GFR. So what did they get? All patients received IV methylpred. So they got a 0.5 gram a day for those who are more than 45 and 0.25 gram a day for those who are less than 45 kg on day one and two. And then there was a rapid oral prednisone taper that we, you know, sort of talked about earlier. Uh, so starting at 20 to 25 milligram per day and decreasing to 2.5 milligram per day by week 16. And that's pretty hardcore. You know, I have, I have personally in lupus never done a prednisone taper like this it it makes me very anxious to taper steroids this fast i'll be honest so of course there's the methylpred loading on at the top what else were they getting so they they all received mmf so if people already on mmf they were left on it but if they were not on mmf they got uh, one gram daily for one week and then increased to one gram twice daily on day eight so those who were mmf naive got two grams a day but i guess some patients who may have already been on higher than two gram doses they would have stayed on higher than two gram doses and uh, then they of course received the study drug or the placebo uh, which was identical in appearance taste and smell uh, and the study drug was 23.7 milligram of woclospore twice daily and I, I cannot make sense of why this is such an odd kind of dose and which i think 23.7 uh, is like 3 pills so twice daily, this is like six pills a day of some 7.9 milligrams, I think. So it's a very strange kind of uh, dose. I don't know why they couldn't round it off and just tell us it was 24 milligrams.
2: Anyway. One of the things I just want to point out is this dose of MMF is lower than the studied dose by Canteras and Appel, where their target dose was three grams a day.
1: Right. So so in the OMS trial that Joel is talking about, which is from 2009, which is the big trial of MMF versus, is it cyclophosphamide? Cyclophosphamide. They achieve a goal dose of MMF of 2.5 to 3 grams per day in about 92% of the patients in that trial. So almost all the patients who you're used to giving MMF to because of that trial, you should be shooting for that higher 2.5 to 3 gram dose, noting that you're limited by side effects in, in a fair number of people.
0: Now, how do you dose MMF? Again, this goes back to my black magic comment. Is that, is it like body size or or what have you? And is that part of the reason, like maybe outside North America, they are, you know, hesitant to use three grams a day. Is that why they kept it at two grams for, for people who are MMF naive?
5: I actually don't know the answer to that question. I mean, again, in the U.S., we're very—we tend to want to target for three if they tolerate it. I, that's a good question.
3: Is anybody using mycophenolate levels aside from ensuring compliance, but to actually target some level?
5: I don't even know how to order that.
0: And, and I think so for the MMMF, would be no. <laughs> yeah, and, and for remember, I think you need to do an area under the curve, right? Trough levels are not useful. Mm-hmm. So it's way more messy is, yeah. is all I know.
1: <laughs> Jenny and I know one doctor who orders MPA levels and people to figure and like doses mycophenolate based on that. But the rest of us have no idea what to do with an MPA level. I think really just like this is the dose you're getting and do I think you're taking it are the two big questions.
6: Yeah, I've, I've ordered it before when questioning adherence, but more just to check that. But most of my patients are pretty honest about their non-adherence. I'll be honest.
0: <laughs> So in terms of what was measured, we talked about that proteinuria and and they also did 24-hour urine quantification as well as anti-DSDNA at weeks 24 and 52. As far as outcomes are concerned, they had a bunch of them, but the primary outcome is what is the most interesting part. This was complete response at week 52. And and for that, they needed all of the above, so not just one. So they had a proteinuria had to go down from 1.5 to 0.5 uh, milligram per milligram. No, to be so qu-
2: clear, they had to have greater than 1.5 to be enrolled, and they had to be less than 0.5 exactly. to get complete remission. Exactly. So And the
6: mean was actually fairly high.
2: Four grams, I think, something like that. Mm-hmm. Jenny's going to give us results. I know. I, Don, I'm the same way. I just, I can't, I can't I just, hold back.
0: Then, then that kidney function had to be stable. So that EGFR had to be more than 60 uh, mils per, but in case they were less than 60 to begin with, I guess the decrease had to be no more than 20% from baseline. they Should not have needed any rescue medication for lupus. Uh, And the dose of prednisone should be no more than 10 milligrams. And again, they were supposed to go down to 2.5. So at week uh, 44 to 52, so the last couple of months, they had to be on uh, 10 milligrams of prednisone or less. They did have a bunch of secondary outcomes. Hierarchical one is a time to proteinuria reduction to less than 0.5 grams a day. Partial renal response, which is just a 50% reduction of PCR. So 50%, but not down to 0.5. And the time to partial response and complete response response at week 24, not just week 52. And they had some other uh, endpoints. Yes, Joel.
2: Swap, with the importance of proteinuria in this study, I'm sure they protocolized using RAS inhibition.
6: I can speak to that. Yeah.
2: Tell us, Don.
0: Don, go ahead. Uh,
6: So if uh, patients were on it going into the trial, which I think almost two thirds, I'd have to look maybe 50 to 60 percent They had to stay on the same dose. It could not be increased. If they were not on it going in, they could not be started.
0: They had to be on a stable dose for at least four weeks before and they had to be continue the same dose throughout the trial. Exactly right.
1: And then, so, and then given the critical role that proteinuria plays in the outcome of this trial, I think it's important to mention like the one bit of basic science we can throw in here that we know that cyclosporine and cyclosporine analogs and, and CNIs in general have a direct effect on the actin cytoskeleton of podocytes and lead to decreased proteinuria. So that's something we've known for at least 10, maybe 15 years. And so seeing a proteinuria reduction here from one and a half to 0.5 or even from four to 0.5, it's hard to know how much of that is driven by treating the lupus nephritis versus treating the podocyte proteinuria leaky problem that we
5: have. So the effect of calcineurin inhibitors in general on podocytes and its ability to modulate the actin cytoskeleton has been all done in vitro. And one caveat here is that podocytes in vitro do not make foot processes, All right? So we are measuring kind of just bulk activity, whether it's lamellapodia for rack or whatever, right? And so it is implied then, and there's some good data with lymphocyte-deficient mice where you give them a CNI, and you can reduce proteinuria. So in other words, the effect is not going through a B or T cell. I mean, that's been demonstrated. So again, it supports it, but that direct evidence still hasn't been uh, shown because it's really hard to show that.
2: But a lot of us have experience in GNs, and we, know we see this reduction in proteinuria when we throw TACRO at it or cyclosporine at it. I mean, that's my experience. It just doesn't last, right? It's a temporizing.
0: Yeah, if you stop the CNI and the proteinuria comes back, right? So so that's what yeah. I was
3: going to say. Being a non-GN person, looking at a study that's CNI with a proteinuria outcome, that's Jacob deGrom on the mound. And then you say, <laughs> we're giving you a non-standard mycophenolate dose a rapid pred taper although al finds it slow in his own experience (laughs) plus you're saying you can't increase aces and arbs now you're giving them spider tack and saying good luck right you're really stacking the odds for this to be a
5: positive study as most studies do well-designed study right. excellent I mean, I mean just look at this study right proteinuria is like the really the dominant force that drives this outcome right and guess what it's stacked with a lot of people with high levels of proteinuria i mean it's just the way it is
1: it's not wrong right because like these patients are unlikely to come in with a rapidly progressive gn and a creatinine that goes from one to six in two months these are folks who probably aren't going to have like all these other things that we're used to seeing in rapidly progressive gns they're going to have kidney disease that progresses over the course of 10 or 15 years, that's really tough to design a clinical trial that any drug company is going to want to launch. So I I get the desire to focus on interim outcomes, and maybe it's better to have less proteinuria due to a CNI as opposed to not less proteinuria, not due to a CNI, right? I just don't know that this CNI is so much better than a low-dose attack rose effects on all the other CNI magic that we're not seeing.
3: But it would have been nice to at least do a a washout period. Say, okay, stop it for a bit, recheck proteinuria. How much of that was the hemodynamic effect?
5: So, I mean, they, they definitely have these uh, more long-term extension type Arms ongoing right now, so I'm not privy to the specifics of what. So I'm
2: I'm on clinicaltrials.gov, and I'm looking at Aurora Two, which is the extension. Mm -hmm. It's a two-year additional trial. It sounded like this—they remained blinded, like they're staying on their assigned trials. Is that what you're seeing, Don?
6: Yeah. So the the extension trial is a continuation for uh, patients that were in Aurora. And I think the extension trial is absolutely necessary to see the long-term effects. Also, I know you guys keep talking about proteinuria as an endpoint at one year and can we rely on this, but the long-term data in patients that were followed in a a few different, uh, the European studies showed that proteinuria at one year was the best predictor of long-term outcomes. So that's why it's been used as a surrogate marker. And gls and the Aurora trial were both longer than some of the previous failed six-month trials that were in lupus nephritis. I know a year, two years might seem short, but these trials are fairly extensive. So I think that long-term data is important and is being followed, but there's also the logistics of trying to get information in a decent timeline.
1: And then this composite endpoint seems pretty similar to the BLISS LN composite endpoint that they ended up with, not the one they started the trial with, but the one they switched to. Is that is that well, right? Well,
2: the the proteinuria in BLISS was zero point seven rather than zero point five. Right. So, so I don't, this sorry, I don't this know is what
1: that means. this is the one that BLISS LN started with and then relaxed away from. Is that right? Right. Right. Okay. That, that makes right. more sense.
5: This was Maria Delara, among others at UCSF, had reexamined uh, the lupus data. And when they were looking at all the parameters, including temporal considerations, they found that threshold of 0.7 at one year being the real inflection point between those with worse renal outcomes and those with better, even compared to everything else that was measured. So that's the reason why GSK moved towards that
2: right so what al's trying to say is that they changed the rules of their uh, randomized control trial based it was an evidence-based change in the rules <laughs> But, that,
0: that, but, was
6: bliss. but yeah. that was bliss that's right no, that's, but bliss. Not that's bliss not to be confused with aurora but no the aurora, one aurora year plays per, it
2: flat plays it straight
6: proteinuria is the best biomarker for long-term outcomes in lupus nephritis that's
2: we're going to see three-year outcome when they're done with aurora two. And I I did confirm that those patients do remain blinded and on placebo versus drug intervention. So it's really going to be a three, ultimately going to be a three-year trial.
0: So again, we didn't talk about the intervention being, uh, control being placebo, which I guess because uh, as we discussed initially, as Don and Al said, many of these patients are on MMF and prednisone. So I guess MMF, prednisone is a reasonable standard of care for the the control group to receive. We won't talk about another CNI as a control in the, we can come back to that in the discussion. So in terms of subgroup, and again, Don mentioned about lupus class 5 as one of the subgroups. So they did have a bunch of pre-specified subgroups. So, you know, someone age less than 30 versus age more than 30, men versus women, white versus Asian versus African American versus others, the region, the class 5 isolated versus all other classes put together, use of MM at screening, yes or no, or use of MMF less than 2, grams versus sorry less than or equal to two grams versus more than two grams so they have a bunch of subgroups that they're looking at some of which are interesting when we come to them and in terms of stats they thought they would have a 20 percent response rate of the complete renal response in the placebo and that would go up to 34 percent in in voclosporin so for that they they had 80 percent power with 162 patients so you know that that part is the the rest of the stats it's pretty legit the study itself was funded uh, by aurenia which makes uh look, look kindness i think is how you said it look Kindness or voclosporin They were involved in the data collection, analysis, and interpretation. The authors uh, apparently maintained the editorial control and on can correct me. But but of course, the sponsor reviewed the manuscript prior to submission. So that's all but I the, had. Uh, but the authors
2: wrote, there was no ghostwriters here, as far as we know. It was written by the lead author. And were any of the authors employees of, what was the name of the company? orinia orinia Yeah, I
6: think some of the authors were the uh, em- employees of the
2: Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay, Al, you look at these methods, and I want you to give it a grade,
5: A, B, or C, or D, or F. So if you look at the overall diaspora of clinical trial design, this is probably like a C-, minus, right? But lupus nephritis trials are really hard. There's a lot of noise because of the standard of care, and we have imprecise biomarkers. Right? They cannot specific-
2: okay, okay, before you give the excuses, wh- what are your main concerns with the methods? C- minus is a terrible grade. When you look at the methods, you're like, the big problems with the methods are, give me one, two, and three.
5: The, the primary outcome is a hard outcome to reach in the uh, real world. Just as a reminder, remember the ALMS trial, and they looked at 24-week, obviously, but they used a CRR kind of similar. It's a little more relaxed, actually, than what's here. But there, they only got a response rate about 8 to 9%. Alright, that's alms. Alright, that's gold standard. Right. And here, even the placebo, we're seeing 20% at week 24. All right. But again, you know, while there's data showing that CRR is really what we need to hit, it is really hard to hit, maybe because we're not measuring the right things. And this always goes back to what are you going to include into your outcome? That's probably number two. Number one is obviously the noise with standard care. Number two is that the outcomes are messy. Even though they're well defined, they're not precise for disease activity. I would say those are the two big ones. And
2: and you've made this point in the previous podcast and already today that you don't have an alternative that works. Let me ask you this. Do you think you could enroll patients and do protocol biopsies at a a year? And would that be better?
5: Not in my cohort. You would not be able to enroll patients? No.
2: Don, talk to me.
6: Yeah. So in an ideal world, we would uh, have post biopsies for everybody, but that's going to affect enrollment. I will say they are going to do some biopsies in a subgroup of patients. So there's a post biopsy follow-up for a subgroup. It's it's a smaller subgroup, but at least they're looking at it, which I appreciate. ALMS actually, their complete response rate wasn't their primary endpoint. So their primary endpoint was uh, some partial response and, and they had like a 50% reaching that endpoint. So to use complete response as a primary endpoint, I think, shows how challenging it is, and look at the data. So there's certainly difference in the, the control arm and the vocosporin arm. There, lupus nephritis is extremely challenging for a number of reasons. Uh, there's a very high AE rate and SAE rate among patients in these clinical trials. There's a lot of variability. We know patients are coming in. Some are treatment naive. Some have had a disease for a period of time. And I think the the endpoints that they Put together as this complete renal response is reasonable to look at at a year. Now, they didn't just look at proteinuria; they looked at preservation of GFR. They looked at not requiring rescue medications as well. So I hope I'm not giving any biases. to no, no, no Hey, yeah.
2: the the real problem here is that there's a lot of questions about what their primary outcome is. Everybody's like, this is not great. This is not great, and yet. And with a one-year study, nobody has a viable alternative. It's not like there was an obvious alternative that they could have chosen, right? Is, is that where you're coming from, uh, Don and Al? That's yeah. Exactly. I mean, yep.
6: you can't look at doubling of creatinine and end-stage kidney disease not, at not one Not in this population. No.
2: That's right. Nobody's crossing that line. And so
6: we hope if, not. You're gonna,
2: <laughs> if you're going to do a study- that's going to have a one-year outcome, and it's not unreasonable to look at results after one year of a study drug. Because certainly if the d- results had gone the other way and they had done a lot worse on vocosporin, that would be very interesting too, right? And so it, would have been, it was good to un- unblind them and take a look and make sure everything was going okay. And we're going to get additional data at three years. Okay. Jenny, lay some results on us.
4: All right. So in this study, 357 patients were enrolled, and initially there was an even split between vocosporin and the placebo. But 163 in the vocalist foreign group and 147 ended up completing the study. And the reasons for dropout seemed to be about the same in each group. A medication compliance Except for death. Okay. Yes. (laughs) But it was like one versus what, three? Five. Five. Okay. (laughs) All
1: right. And and let's be fair that the like placebo death, was yeah. associated more death than the drug was associated. Right,
0: right, 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 right. So yeah.
1: again, the trial was led to continue.
0: Which, which is interesting because in Aura LV, I think, the, the earlier trial, uh, there were way more deaths in the vokalosporin. And in the low dose, I think, more than the high dose. And, and I don't know, maybe one of you knows the reason as to why I think it was thought to be chance. And this happened in some countries with infections causing deaths, not, not in North America or Europe. Was that sort of the reason?
6: Yeah, I think that that was the suspected reason. So they were, I, I know that they were a little choosier about what sites they were going to use for Aurora. I think it, one thing to emphasize is lupus nephritis patients are sick. they, Lupus is a systemic disease, so we're not just looking at the kidney. These patients do have uh, high adverse events, and depending on the medical systems in various countries, in a multinational study, some of these are side effects. you know, issues are managed better than others. So this difference doesn't really stand out to me as being significant as far as... I,
2: I like the fact that they had twice as many people unable to complete the study from the placebo group. Like that looks to me like a drug that's pretty well tolerated if you have more people finishing that are on drug than are on yeah, placebo. Yeah,
4: we'll get- that in a little bit so in the groups medication compliance was assessed by capsule count of returned pill bottles so definition compliance was about 99 percent and as an fyi the capsules are soft gelatin capsules and each one contains 7.9 milligrams why it doesn't contain eight i don't know <laughs> that's what they say. And there was a rapid oral steroid taper prescribed at similar rates between the groups. And we've already talked about the rapidity of the taper versus how slow it might seem to some. And exposure to MMF was similar between groups. Now the baseline characteristics are notable for a high baseline EGFR. So about 90 in both groups. And so they're not anywhere near the CKD cutoff or EGFR. And the mean baseline UPCR, as Don had mentioned, was around four in each group, four point one four in vocus score and a three point eight seven in the placebo group. Most of the participants were female, which is not a surprise, and there was a wide distribution among races, but still the preponderance were whites compared to the other groups. Most of the biopsies revealed pure class four. In terms of the different classifications, that one was the one that had the greatest percentage of the cohort. So for the primary endpoint, the vocal born group had significantly more patients achieve a complete renal response at 52 weeks
2: this is important, is the time since initial diagnosis of lupus nephritis was four and a half years, right? Like they're only showing up here because their disease is still active four and a half years after they tripped the diagnosis of lupus nephritis. This is not a easy to treat cohort, right? These are people that got pretty bad disease, and they've probably gone through a few therapies if they've been carrying the lupus nephritis. Does this
4: mean that the biopsies considered for the study are second biopsies? Or were they under presumed?
2: If they were diagnosed four years ago, I presume it was by biopsy. I most mean, I of these were recent, right? Like within analysis. six months. Yeah,
4: eighty
0: yeah,
2: yeah. percent of them were within six months.
0: Uh, or they may not have had lupus nephritis. They may have. Had no, no,
2: no. That 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 four years is lupus nephritis. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Yeah, that's lupus nephritis. The time since lupus was six point six and six point nine for the two groups.
1: And then carrying that argument a little bit forward, if someone had gotten diagnosed with lupus nephritis, started on MMF, had a terrible side effect, they would probably not come back to this kind of a trial where they went back onto MMF. So I think this is probably selecting for a group of people who at least tolerate the like two-ish grams of MMF a a day.
5: That's exactly right.
4: Okay, so the primary endpoint The sporin group has significantly more patients achieve the complete renal response at 52 weeks. And this amounted to 41% in the drug group compared to 23% of the placebo group with an odds ratio of 2.65, P less than 0.0001. And the absolute difference between groups was 18% in favor of sporin. And when you break down each component of the primary endpoint, each uh, measure favored vocosporin, but was only statistically significant for a UPCR of 0.5 milligrams per milligrams or less. All of the secondary endpoints, which are presented in Table 2, were statistically significant in favor of vocosporin. At 24 weeks, the vocosporin advantage was statistically significant with an odds ratio of 2.23 and a P of 0.002. Uh, Similar trends go for the partial renal response at 24 and 52 weeks. And the vocal sporin group achieved the UPCR milestones, such as a UPCR less than 0.5 or a 50% reduction in about half the time as the placebo group. So for each one, it was like amounted to about half the time. And this is touted as a big deal because proteinuria associates with worse long-term outcomes, but as we had discussed before, there are other uh, things to consider about what the drug does and its direct effect on proteinuria. Subgroup analyses presented in Figure 4 favor vocosporin in female sex, all ages, particularly in Asian race, uh, the regions of Asia and Latin America. And a biopsy class that is not pure classified. Concurrent MMF use at screening and patients requiring a lower MMF dose.
2: Yeah, but again, but again subgroup analysis, sure. the study's never powered for these to be significant. It's amazing how many of the subgroup analysis were significant, but calling out specific ones that don't cross that line, to me, the important thing is every one of those subgroup analysis is off to the right showing an advantage for vaclosporin across the board, every single one of them, Right.
0: Yeah, the point estimates for all of them are are on the right yeah. side, you know.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: yeah, and 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 uh, again for subgroups, if I can uh, digress a little bit, what you should be ha- doing is is showing. Interaction. Is it would
2: it be possible to stop you from digressing? I don't think it's possible. Like there's <laughs> there's no force in the universe that could stop you from digressing. So yes, go ahead,
5: please digress. What I'm learning here is Swapnil is the human form of entropy, right? Like this <laughs> is. <laughs> Joel tries to run he a was. tight ship and Swap tries to
1: tries to sink it. That's basically no, no, no. the story of every. I love, really I love the
2: leaky ship. I love the leaky ship. That should be the name of the podcast.
0: The, the Nephrology <laughs> Journal
2: Club Leaky Ship Podcast.
0: Go ahead, Swap. Please uh, digress. Yeah. So, so in a, in a subgroup analysis, really, you should be either when you're slicing and dicing into many different groups, you're doing, A, you're doing multiple comparisons and, and B, the, they are not powered, like Joel said, right? For the, only the main outcome is powered. So you're going to have some 95% confidence intervals, which cross one. So you, you should not really look at them that way. It's more about, are these very different from each other, right? So if you look at the MMF, use at screening, that one looks a little bit different where the confidence intervals don't cross one. And ideally, what you would want to see is an interaction p-value and not those p-values that are presented at the end. Interestingly enough, in terms of journal style, NEJM don't allow you to present any p-values. So that if you'll see recent papers, there are no there are no p-values at all with subgroups they just show the subgroups and 95 percent confidence intervals it's all about how making sure you nudge people to make the right interpretation Uh, and there's a famous paper which uh, looked at subgroups if the drug doesn't work does it work in this subgroup or that subgroup and there was a i think it was isis where the the statistician got so upset he said okay let me look at astrological science at birth and and they showed that it works only if your gemini or libra aspirin works otherwise it doesn't work right so (laughs) and that's just chance right if you're going to slice and dice some group are going to flip here and there so that's the small digression i had yeah,
4: but so but in looking at this would this would this not drive investigators to look a little bit more closely or design another more well powered study based on these subgroups like for example the asian population yeah
0: absolutely right exactly you can use this as a hypothesis for doing more studies but don't use them to say hey that for example that it because for whites it crosses one don't say that it does not work in whites but it works in in, an asian population That, that sort of a conclusion would not be appropriate but you're absolutely right you can use this for doing other studies
4: okay so for other markers presented in the supplement, there were no significant differences in lipid measurements or in C3, C4, anti-double-stranded DNA. I thought the lipids were lower.
2: I thought uh, the lipids I, were lower. Mean lipid cholesterol were higher than normal. I
4: think that it was significant.
2: With significantly greater decreases occurring in the sporin group for cholesterol, low-density lipid proteins. Page appendix 13. page 13. <laughs> God knows I didn't read the appendix but that's what it says in the main document. This is a page uh, two, 2076, second column, <laughs> second to last paragraph. And I presume this was just from lowering the proteinuria. I uh, guess, but oh,
4: Oh, was it, did they say for LDL? Is that, is that it? Yes, for cholesterol and the LDL, it decreased significantly. Okay, triglycerides "It's like 0.0519. <laughs> so whatever you want to make, make of that.
0: And I thought... Uh, CNIs don't necessarily have good effects on lipids. But in in the summary, I remember we mentioned that uh, oclosporin is supposed to have a favorable effect on lipids and glucose. It did uh, here, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and apparently better than uh, cyclosporin and tacrolimus, based on some small studies.
2: I got a giant... BS limited on that same paragraph. At the end of that paragraph, it says mean concentrations of magnesium and potassium are made within the normal range for both treatment groups. My head exploded when I read this, right? I don't care what the mean potassium is. All I want to know about are the six patients that had high potassium, right? Like, it's not what the mean levels is. How many patients had high potassium from a CNI? The way they describe this is just like, no, that's just not the way anybody cares about this data, right? The average potassium for the whole group is not important if 12 people had a is seven, right? Those 12 people are going to be very concerned about that seven. So it was, again, appendix page oh, 16. Yeah, it region,
4: it shows basically graphs. So that, um, at least the standard deviation bars don't really veer up to seven, but. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, that's <laughs> not the way to present that data.
4: That's yeah. The and then no, no significant difference for a hemoglobin A1C, a serum glucose, and mo- most importantly, corrected EGFR. And no new
2: calcium urine inhibitor induced DM, right? Nobody developed one, diabetes, one, is that right? There yeah, was one diabetic yeah. and it was in the placebo group.
4: And so as for the adverse events summarized in table three, as a whole, they appear to have occurred in a balanced fashion between the groups. But for some reason, when you break down the categories, the boblosporin group had more infestations. And I don't know what that means. <laughs> it goes in infections and infestations, 65% so versus 57 and investigations and infestations. I don't know what that means.
0: Yeah, yeah, it came up during the chat also, and we were all wondering what it meant, but no one had a good answer.
2: Don, any of your patients get an infestation?
6: <laughs> That's an interesting question, but I don't think there was a statistical no, no. difference. But it would—I mean, it's—but a striking difference in
4: percentages. I, guess. I don't even know what that means. The investigations and infestations—that category does befuddle me. <laughs> I don't
2: know. Yeah, I've never, I don't even know how I would check that off as a PI. I'd be like, I don't know.
6: The thing about AEs are they're reported by the PI. So the wording might vary on country, on on how they word these. And it's going to be a weird
1: British Lancet thing. (laughs) We just don't get it.
6: Yeah. And there's always these questions on like acute kidney injury versus elevated creatinine. Like they actually could be considered two separate things just because it depends on what the PI called it.
2: Jenny, have we got anything else in the the rat? Yeah, I
4: think we're almost done. Yeah. And there were some like more GI side effects and uh, vascular side effects, I think, in the sporin group, but not surprisingly, fewer uh, side effects in terms of in the renal and the metabolism category. And then as we had mentioned before, there was one death in the sporin group and five in the placebo. Notably, there was no quality of life questionnaire or results presented in this study. And in all their measures of disease activity, so
2: DS, DNA, and complements, there was no difference between the two groups. Is that right? Does that concern you, Don or Al? How do you how do you look at that? How do you interpret that?
6: I mean, they're not great biomarkers to begin with, but it does beg the question that is this decrease in proteinuria driven by this protocyte stabilization, or is it immunologic? And I think it is important to have these repeat biopsies, at least in a subgroup to see if there's any change at the tissue level. But I mean, I I order them every time I get a a lupus nephritis (laughs) patient, I order C3, C4 and double stranded DNA. But unless the double stranded DNA starts at like 4000, when it goes from 30 to 20, does that really make a difference? I don't know. Al, what do you think about that?
5: Yeah, they're not really clinically actionable to me anymore. I mean, uh, well, uh, the entire podcast about compliment I can, I'd can. i be more than happy to be invited again because I know Swapney will be the first person who would want to not only record it, but listen to it over and over again.
2: Describe how I'm currently managing patients, and I want you to tell me why I'm doing it wrong. Okay, so I got a patient who's taken two grams of MMF a day and they've got three grams of proteinuria and they come back four months later and they're down to like two and a half grams of proteinuria and their complements are still depressed and their DSDNA is still elevated and not modestly changed. And when I see that patient, I was like, well, what we really need to do is we really need to turn up the dose. I want you to titrate up to three grams a day. Am I handling my lupus patients wrong? Well, Alfred, you're, Al, you're, you're you're not in your head. I don't know if you're saying I'm, I'm an idiot or that's exactly what I would do. What are, what are you saying?
5: Well, I, I agree with you, but you may be an idiot. But that, those are two. <laughs> 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 Can I get a yeah for that? So anyway, I going to put yeah. it in there. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, no, I, I would do the same thing too again, in the absence of really any additional guidance, right. This is where humans are using their assumptions and treating them as facts and we're wrong most of the time. So but what makes us feel better right? And I mean, that's what we do. So again, that's the reason why we do these studies is it challenges your assumptions, then some of them ignore it and continue to give whatever for a drug that was given 60 years ago for, you know, any disease like the one I was thinking about is gold for rheumatoid arthritis. But I, I just I, I can't disagree with you. But I, I don't know why I do it either. Right? <laughs>
2: okay, are we done with results,
5: Jenny?
4: Okay, yes, we are done with results. Yes,
5: we are done with results. Actually, I'd like to throw a couple of Comments about the results. I Please. think the Yeah. So I think I mentioned this before, but the complete response percentage in the placebo group, which is essentially the alms group, right? The two kind of combined in the alms trials. You know, we saw a doubling in 10 years, right? So we have to give ourselves some credit that we might be doing something right. I don't even know what that is. I really don't know, but you know there is something about that. This really difficult to hit treat to target uh, standard. That number is increasing, so. I mean, is that good or bad? I mean, time will tell, but that's, I think, you know, good. But I think both for the Bliss ln and for this trial, then you're adding some percentage points above that. So Bliss ln you know, for Blimimab, I think it was like another 10 or 11% or something like this. Here, it's like a doubling, right? You're getting over 40% at one year. I think that's very encouraging for the future, right? These drugs might be halfway there right, with the current combinations that we have. And so we just build on this momentum and maybe redefine standard of care in the future, right, however that's going to be. So I I really find the entire lupus on nephritis landscape very interesting right now. I'm I'm very encouraged about what might be being developed in the pipeline. I just hope study design doesn't screw it up.
6: Yeah, again, the percentage of patients that actually meet these complete remissions is still pretty abysmal. So there's there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think in clinical practice, I try to follow these patients very quickly, adjust their therapy if they're not meeting those targets. And I think the ULAR, ERA, EDTA is the most recent guideline that we can refer to because KDGO is not out yet, even though the preliminary KDGO was out a while ago. But, you know, they recommend it after three months to evaluate if you're getting a reduction in proteinuria, and, and if not, to consider changing therapy.
5: Yeah. I mean, that's a good point that the, the kinetics of response is quite quick with CNIs, I think, in general for what you guys see too, which is a little bit different than a lot of the medicines that we use in lupus and in rheumatology as a whole. So, yeah, you know, that that is from a rheumatologic perspective, that's that's a, a reason to use this class.
2: Okay. So, I, w- I want to ask the same question to uh, a, a lupus naive versus a lupus expert. So, Josh, does this study make you more likely to reach for tacro or uh, psycho? In your next lupus patient who's not getting a great response to Cellcept? So that's that's really hard, right? I, I think, first
1: of all, we don't have a sense of what tacro or cyclosporin does compared to voclosporin. I don't have a reason to think voclosporin would be miles and miles better than tacro or cyclosporin. But I don't have any evidence that compares them directly. I feel like, from from my understanding of the results of this trial, a lot of the outcome is driven by proteinuria reduction. I think that jives with what Al is talking about too—the rapidity of protein reduction in the urine here maybe outpaces the rheumatologic or like inflammatory response that we're seeing, which I think goes along with this. Maybe one of the main effects of a CNI here is really more on podocyte and proteinuria than it is on inflammatory handwave handwave. The others stuff in this composite outcome, the GFR greater than 60, if you started at 90 and you told me you were going to stay above 60 for a year, I think that'd be true for most people. There's no need for rescue medication. There's only so many other rescue medications available to you. And then it's just looking at if you're on prednisone for the last two months of the trial. or So I feel like I'm in a place here where I know MMF is a first-line option. I think if that's failing, I think the guidelines still tell me to switch to stricyclophosphamide as opposed to jumping and adding something else on here to really achieve clinical remission before I move on to a maintenance therapy. Maybe I have a different approach to this. Is that what other folks would do here?
3: So I will say I was cynical about parts of this study. If Josh is presenting a lupus nephritis patient to me in clinic and saying, I only want to give him two grams of MMF and I don't want to increase their ACE or ARB, I'd I'd tell him he needs a fifth year of fellowship, right? I've already been held back twice. Yeah, so, but... (laughs) You know, I'll admit, I have two patients on voclosporin based on this data. And part of that was it's FDA approved. It was easy for me to get it for them. But it was the patient that is not responding to standard therapy. It came down to do I give them rituximab or do I give them voclosporin? They're both class 5 lupus, which has to be the most frustrating thing we see in, at least that I see in clinic. And for what it's worth, they're both... Uh, Asian, and they both have proteinuria. And I said, look, let's just try the Baclosporin. So I, th- I think there is a role for it. If you look at these Kaplan-Meier curves in figure three, looks like you give it to them and five minutes later, their proteinuria goes down. And so clearly there's a hemodynamic component to this, but that may be okay. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that it's worth the cost as others have alluded to versus cheaper options.
1: I, I know we're selling these new Flozinator pins through the NefJC website, but I don't know how many lupus nephritis patients were enrolled in the SGLT2 inhibitor trials, and maybe SWAP or someone else knows. I thought it uh, was would none. We ex- there were none. They were, they were excluded. Excluded.
2: At least if it was active lupus, they were always excluded from the trials.
1: Because if I were looking for a hemodynamic way to reduce proteinuria, I feel like I might reach one of those first if I were looking in an evidence-free zone. This has some evidence behind it, so I'm not saying we're in a total evidence vacuum, but man, those those are really tempting in an environment like this.
6: So CNIs still are immunosuppressants. We all see transplant patients too. I do think there's a definite role for the podocyte stabilization, but there may still be an immunologic role here. CNIs are not ACE inhibitor. But what I think is interesting and and this idea and it was coined a multi-target therapy by the study that was in the Annals of Internal Medicine, I think in 2015, but it was a study out of China that looked at tacrolimus and MMF. And the idea of going with like lower doses of different targets can work well in some patients that can't maximize other therapies. And multi-targeted therapy has been used a lot in oncology. Why are we afraid of it in nephrology?
0: Yeah, that multi-target therapy trial, like those results are very impressive from from 2015. I'm sorry, Uh, what was this trial?
2: Well, I'm sorry so it was in,
0: is? In, It is so it is uh, the multi-target trial in lupus nephritis it was in 2015 it was run completely out of chance and uh, but a large sample size 370 odd patients I was just looking it up uh, and it compared TAC MMF with IV cyclophosphamide right so that's what Josh was going to reach for was IV cyclophosphamide and actually showed that complete uh, renal response which is a proteinuria of less than 0. 0.4 grams per day was seen in like something like 45% with TAC MMF versus uh, somewhere in the 20s with IV cyclophosphamide and again it was 345 lupus i i remember discussing the, that at journal club and somehow we thought it was too good to be true i i don't know if, if is that a reason or was it because it's from china that it didn't i don't think it caught on into practice am i right as much as some of the other trials did
6: i think in the lupus world and then lupus nephritis world I've been using TAC for a few years, so I think CNIs have been being used even before the Aurora trial, especially in resistant patients, so I don't think that calcineurins were not being used. I think there was some skepticism about how applicable those results were to the U.S. population, and I think that's one thing that is really good about the Aurora trial is that it did include African Americans, for example, and there was a portion of North Americans in the study. So the trials were set up a little different. The control group was different. The multi-target therapy compared it to cyclophosphamide, of course. So that, again, one of the problems in lupus nephritis trials is you can't really compare them to each other very well because they're all just a little different in, in how they're structured. But, you know, I think the idea of using a calcineurin inhibitor on top of standard care has been around for a while. I don't know, Al, how how do you feel the rheumatology world has looked at? CNIs?
5: Like it was completely foreign. <laughs> okay. um, there's very little CNI use amongst, largely because of monitoring. It's just never really caught on. Obviously, you guys have a different baseline, different normalization of what's going on with this with a different you know set of, of patients. And I was going to say this, that I think to providers, the immediate barriers are going to be the way it's prescribed, all right? There's two specialty pharmacies that you have to go through in order to get it. You can't just prescribe it. Like any other medicine, the other barrier to rheumatologists is that I think even without the drug monitoring, the the adverse events. Still, are a little bit scary to rheumatologists because of the vasoconstrictive effects, or class effect. They're largely reversible. It looks like in their data, you know, the vast majority will reverse right back if they have decreasing eGFR or increasing blood pressure. But those are type of side effects that I think rheumatologists would have a really hard time trying to get a patient to buy into. Just as a reminder, I think in our world, a lot of our patients trust that we are providing them an option that may work or will work, they're always mostly concerned about toxicities, a priori, right? And so I wonder how this translates over to the patients when they hear that one out of five plus are going to have a vascular bed. Obviously, you're not going to use that term. That's going to vasoconstrict. That could lead to some issues. Again, that could be reversible. That could be a hard no. Right. So that was going to start off my barriers to patients, the average events. But number two would be that pill burden thing, right? They could, this could be something about 20 tabs a day slash capsules, right? Let's say six for Cellcept, six for Vocal Sporn, two for hydroxychloroquine. You have your RAS, you have maybe lipid lowering lean agents, you have other antihypertensives, then they, all the other crap that, you know, is given to them. You know, that's a a lot of stuff that I wouldn't even take myself. So that's the interesting thing about, is Aranea going to realize the clinical trial efficacy in the real world? I'm very curious how this is going to play out. I'm very curious. So, and then of course, the healthcare system problem, the barrier is the cost, right? And of course, we don't have any experience with any other CNIs. So most rheumatologists will probably go to vocal sporn first if they can get yeah and so i don't know i i find it, this is very interesting i'm going to you know see how this plays out in a year
0: so so in yeah in terms of pill burden sorry can't they just make a uh, larger different formulations uh, like you know, we have different cni doses we have 25 50 uh, of 100 of cyclosporin so why can't they right. just make right but
5: it? so the potency of cyclosporin is so much more right then 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 cyclosporin so the problem here is that if there's a potential eGFR drop and don knows all about this and if it goes below 60 then it's a, a graded reduction in the amount of cyclosporin you would take to avoid toxicities Right? So even if your if your EGFR drops below sixty, but some, if you're like within twenty percent of your baseline, you can drop down to two tabs in the morning, two tablets at night. Right. And so the reason why that's done is because if they had the full dose, the mid dose, and the single the seven point nine dose, they could have a therapeutic misadventure and take the wrong one, which would may really put them in a lot of trouble, even in the short term. And so I, I, I see why this is done. It is still a burden, but I get why the capsules at that particular dose, because they don't want to run into the situation where someone accidentally takes the full 23.7 as opposed to 7.9.
0: And you're not measuring drug levels, so you will not find out. Right. Yeah.
5: Right. And, but I mean, at least it's consistent. The pharmacokinetics, as Don had mentioned earlier, is very consistent. So you don't necessarily need to measure it. You already know it's going to be bad. <laughs> so, right. So I think that's the reason why. But, and so that's from a safety perspective. That's more of a hazard reduction type of thing, but it is painful. When you apply.
2: So, actually, we talked about the pharmacokinetics of voclosporin before we started recording. So, one of the things that makes this different than tacrolimus and cyclosporin is that patients don't require people checking levels, that it's uh, dose it and forget it as long as the GFR remains stable. Is Is that correct, Don?
6: Yeah, absolutely. And I think nephrologists would probably all appreciate this because. It is so hard to track down 12-hour troughs, like getting patients to come in at the right time for the labs. That's not to say that we don't have to monitor for those CNI toxicities. So the main things to monitor for are you know changes in GFR and hypertension, which I think nephrologists are all familiar of common CNI side effects. So we'd be very comfortable looking out for those in this. But not having to get trough levels, boy, as someone that runs a GN clinic, that is a wonderful uh, thing to not have to monitor trough levels.
5: Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. So that's a, that's a real difference.
5: It's good to hear from a rheumatologic perspective that you guys have trouble with that. We just assume it's like they somehow they have this crazy, efficient infrastructure and workflow that allows them to get this along with 24-hour urines like their patients are robots. But <laughs> the fact that you guys have trouble with this makes me feel so much better about myself. How many
6: times a patient comes in is like, oh, I took my pill. I just, And then you try to get them back and getting them back for the lab visit it's
5: like it's the
2: high tacro level you're like is that really toxic or did they just take their medicine before they got the, the the level drawn it's so insidious it makes you just you just doubt every lab value that's abnormal
0: so, can we talk about the cost a little bit? Please. Uh, yeah. So, I'll mention the cost, and I, I heard it's going to be—I I don't know—but from the coverage on blogs and stuff, it's going to be something like ninety-two thousand dollars a year, which is—it's sort of more expensive than dialysis, perhaps. And I think Josh or, or Gerard had made a comment on the tweet chat that you can have forty patients on tacrolimus roughly for that cost.
1: Monitor their levels serially and, and, exactly, to understand and, where they're at. Yeah.
0: Exactly. So that that to me is a big red flag, right? It, it, again, I'm a cheap Canadian.
2: Well, but the the thing about that you don't get with tacrolimus or, cycl- or cyclosporine is they haven't done the trial. Right? I mean, the, like they haven't done the work. For us to use those
4: drugs, right?
0: Exactly. But there's mo- no motivation, right? For them because they have the transplant business. So, so the drug companies there are no longer interested. And again, I think there are generics now as well. So they are no longer interested in making, in doing those trials. You could argue that the multi-target trial from China was sort of like that, though it wasn't a placebo controlled trial.
1: And, and I think I said this in the chat too. Like, I totally understand why a drug company wants to do a Voclosporin versus placebo on top of standard of care trial right? That's the way you're going to get a medicine like Boclosporin approved. Going back however many episodes it was ago, I understand why you want to do a finerenone plus ACE inhibitor trial as opposed to ACE inhibitor trial alone. But I feel like the, the therapeutic decision I want to make is like, what's the right thing to give this patient? And can I get away with giving them a different CNI that's less expensive for them and for the healthcare system? And and maybe, and can I get away with giving them spironolactone or a plurinone instead of a in the in the diabetes world? World. And I feel like at the cost of $90 plus thousand dollars a year, like swap said, more expensive than dialysis. Maybe it makes sense for the government to invest in a trial comparing this regimen versus a cheaper CNI regimen and seeing if there's a real difference that we can see. Because the amount we're going to end up spending on this medicine, if it's widely prescribed and if people take it, which again are, are two big checkboxes that I don't know are going to happen, could be pretty significant still.
2: And I want to be I want to caution you against jumping to that if The first trial that came out on Vaklosporin was Vaclosporin versus Tacro. We'd all be screaming, I don't know if Tacro works. I don't know if this is better than placebo. Maybe these are both worse than placebo. I think those kind of leaps in logic are... Uh, they're seductive, but they result in pretty significant fundamental gaps in our knowledge, and I think this is where you need to start. Now, again, we may never get our—we never got our ACE versus ARB study, right? <laughs> that never got done because it wasn't done initially, and—and and you could make the same argument there. But I—I I do think this is the right initial trial.
0: And these are not trials that uh, industry is going to do, right? The the Aurora one kind of trial is what industry will do. But perhaps this is the role like Josh at government, but maybe NIH, uh, it's the government money anyway. We are taxpayers, we are going to pay for all this. So NIH should be funding these kind of subsequent trials to say, hey, and again, uh, the tacrolimus trials could have been funded by NIH, tacrolimus MMF prednisone versus MMF prednisone, uh, for example, that would have set this up nicely. And that could have been done a few years ago.
6: I will comment that to go back to the the latest lupus nephritis guidelines which are the UR, URA EDTA guidelines I love saying that which were published before the Aurora trial even came out they include the addition of a CNI as a potential you know first line therapy so they didn't specify what CNI to use So, so maybe- I
2: can, can you be very specific what 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 do these guidelines say about CNIs
1: The summary statement I see from the 2019 2019- ULAR, ERA, EDTA recommendations are inactive proliferative lupus nephritis, initial induction treatment with MMF or low-dose intravenous cyclophosphamide, both combined with glucocorticoids, is recommended. MMF and CNI, especially tacrolimus combination, and high-dose cyclophosphamide are alternatives for patients with nephrotic range proteinuria and adverse prognostic factors. Does that kind of jive with? The yes, that you would, that's you what would I was trying
6: it? to say. Is that that was in there? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That that that's what I was alluding to, and I think that was based on the strong data from this multi-target therapy trial. But you know, there are other reasons why I wouldn't jump necessarily to cyclophosphamide if MMF wasn't working for a patient. One is fertility. That's huge. I have so many patients that that is a, a big concern. And I try to explain to them that CKD and end-stage renal disease is not good for fertility either, but it is very important for a lot of our patients. And in the patient-centered care approach, a lot of time, treatment is going to be individualized based on what the patient can tolerate and what side effects they're willing to live with and how many pills they want to take. A day. I threw that in for you, Al.
2: We're gonna, well, let's try to wrap this up. Does anybody have any important points that they were just Dying to say that we've not, they've not been able to get out yet.
6: Repeat okay. biopsies. No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Dawn, tell us <laughs> what's your bid on repeat biopsies.
6: I think that with using proteinuria as an endpoint, which we are doing in lupus nephritis trials, we need to look at repeat biopsies at least in a subset, not all the patients, because then we wouldn't have any enrollment in <laughs> clinical trials, but at least a subset of patients to see... Are we having that response in the kidney that we want?
5: I'm going to pull off swap Neil here real quick because Don and I, I remember we definitely talked about this before about the observations and minimum proteinuria patients with systemic lupus, with no clinical lupus nephritis, having seventy five percent of them, or something like in the Brazilian study, having proliferative lesions. This is something I think about almost every day, and then I just dump it because I have no idea what it means. It is so scary, <laughs> right? What does this mean? It's just oh, for f- sake. I mean, what do you? I mean, do you treat the lesion? Do you treat the clinical? If you're going to treat the lesion, then you have to get another biopsy. But then if like, uh, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that.
6: If the treatment target is pertinuria less than 500 milligrams and they're already there, like what does it mean when I, it, yeah, it's, it's mind-blowing. That, that is part of why those recent guidelines actually have a much lower threshold for biopsying patients. So the threshold is 500 milligrams pertinuria per day or UPCR 0.5. But also there's a caveat on there that says or you know, persistent glomerular hematuria. So how many patients with persistent glomerular hematuria are we going to start biopsying? And how many class 2 lesions are we going to start seeing? Because I don't see very many class 2 lesions right now. Pretty much, I'm going to biopsy someone and know they're going to have 3, 4, or 5, or some combination thereof.
3: Are you guys treating any patients, any lupus nephritis without a biopsy? I mean, I've seen these debates, right? Of like, do you actually need one? And assuming somebody doesn't have a medical contraindication.
6: I mean, I did biopsy someone with a solitary kidney with lupus nephritis who had really bad class four with crescents. And anyway, unfortunately, went on to dialysis. Just really bad luck patient that had a congenital solitary kidney. Well, that's because really they had to just, do a
2: nephrectomy after the biopsy. Yeah, no, that's no, why he's no, on no. dialysis <laughs> now. But oh, Don no, no, no. is committed, but, committed to biopsy,
0: committed. <laughs> but in, in, in but, lupus, you do need a biopsy, right? Like even yeah. like membranous or whatever, if the protein area goes up and down, it's membranous. But in lupus, the class three may be a class five now or, or a class four or whatever, right? So, so with well,
6: membranous, need... we have PLA2R. I mean, we right. have we have a biomarker. <laughs> right. We have something to look at. I think the biopsy is important. Now, have I started empiric therapy because there was an issue someone with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome that just had a clot or someone with valve that was going to be technically difficult to get them in for a biopsy in a timely manner. Yeah, I've empirically treated lupus nephritis for a period of time, but I usually try to get the biopsy.
5: At some point, so actually, th- that brings up an interesting point. So I, I wanted to pick your brains about this. I-, I would probably be hesitant to use vocal sporn in someone with severe endothelial cell activation. So the endotheliopathies, antiphospholipid syndrome, you know, preeclampsia, scleroderma, renal crisis, atypical HUS, those type of these severe COVID. Like if you saw a TMA on a biopsy, I probably would lean away from Vogue right? I mean, does that make sense? Am I, because because I'm, I am under the impression that, that CNIs in general uh, tend to induce a little bit of endothelial dysfunction, and that process is just way out of control in these endotheliopathies, right? So, you, you could actually promote, you know, additional endothelial cell activation, which could trigger a flare of, say, antiphospholipid syndrome. And there's all theoretical, all theoretical, right? But we have no idea if this will play out clinically, but that seems a little dangerous to me.
2: TLDR of this study, so this is a multi-center, international, placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trial of a novel urine inhibitor called vaclosporin. Its primary advantages is better pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. It does not require regular assessment of levels to these patients. Uh, these patients were randomized to this to a variation of standard of care, which is a MMF for all patients plus the addition of voxborne versus placebo, they found uh, a significant difference in their primary outcome, which was complete renal remission, which was largely driven by reduction in proteinuria because they enrolled patients with intact renal function and they only followed them for one year and had very few patients have any change in GFR. Is that a fair summary of what we found in the studies or something? uh, Another large finding that anybody wants to emphasize?
6: I think the steroid regimen is something that uh, should be discussed because this is was a very much a steroid sparing regimen. So for both um, groups. for both groups, and you know what Al said earlier, their results even in the control arm were better than the Alms trial.
2: But not all that different than what they predicted in their uh, power analysis. They were looking for twenty no. percent. Yeah, I mean, they, they, this, they, they pretty much hit their power analysis for their their placebo group. It wasn't a surprise to them.
6: Yeah, but the the complete responders were higher and on this lower regimen because everybody is concerned. They bring up, oh, can I really use this reduced? Steroid dosing and, and this study would support that its use save safe. And, and as Al alluded to earlier, we know long term corticosteroids really increase risk in these lupus patients and increase risk of organ damage over time. And we're all familiar with the side effects that corticosteroids have. So okay. I think that's an important point.
2: Okay, we're going to do a tubular secretion here. Swap, you want to start us, kick us off with uh, tubular secretions?
0: Sure. So uh, I'm excited for Kidney Week this year, which is going to be in San Diego. It's our biggest conference and and they're hoping to do a hybrid kind of conference where some of us will be able to actually be there in person. I'm not sure I'll be one of them. We don't know about the restrictions and, and stuff like that, but it's still exciting that the conferences are back on the agenda. I'm reviewing abstracts and there's some fantastic science that's going to come in there. Yay for Kidney Week.
4: Jenny, what do you got? I'm sure that we all have been watching um, the Dr. Glaucom Flecken uh, TikTok videos of different specialties and subspecialties. So, I don't know if you got. Was there ever one between nephrologists and rheumatologists?
5: There was one for rheumatologists. Like first, and first day I of rheumatology is, rotation. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, the rheumatologist. All I have to say is, who's your daddy? <laughs> you have to watch the video.
4: And so, I'm going to put a plug because there was a nephrologist versus cardiologist one, right? So, I think we're overdue for a rheumatologist versus nephrologist.
5: Let's TikTok. just slam them with messages.
4: Yeah, yeah. Let's
5: do it. <laughs> Al, do you got a tubular secretion? Oh, man. COVID vaccine boosters are on my mind can't stop thinking about them in our population and lupus nephritis populations again we're seeing about in between 15-20% no response serologic response okay slow slow, down, slow down now
2: what, what's the no response mm-hmm. rate no response rate in your
5: about 15-20% when you look at all the studies is there any particular
2: now. immunosuppression suppression that's particularly harmful to seroconversion well
5: Vitamin R, man. The Toxic. These depleters are. Yeah. The, the MMF is also not good. Prednisone, there's some CNI data that's starting to emerge from the transplant world that doesn't look good. And actually, it seems like with the indication at the macro level for immune suppression seems to be driving some issues here. Like the solid organ transplants from the Hopkins, they found like you know 55-0 percent serum negative rate mm-hmm. we're seeing like a 15 20% serum negative mm-hmm. rate right and of course in your transplant you're probably using much greater potencies of, of immunosuppressions, which probably is the best explanation. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I mean, there's just, just nice case reports and emerging data showing that a persistent infection in the immunosuppressor driving many of the circulating variants that are coming out, including variants of concern. It seems to be about 50 to 70 days of incubation really is the sweet spot where all of a sudden now it starts to explode and you start developing all these new variants. That's problematic for a lot of our patients, our transplant patients, our autoimmune patients patients and so boosts you know are on my mind about that so, so.
2: i know have we've seen data in transplant patients getting a third dose showing some improvement I, is you have similar data in your populations
5: not really many of our patients of the ones that have gotten a the booster they basically had a lie uh to get the booster mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right hard to put that into a protocol <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I know that, yeah, I mean, that discussion, oh man, that conversation is so awkward. I was like, I just want to get my booster. You got to make it happen, Al. I was just like, what the f*** do you want me to do? I mean, so anyway, I know that there are studies coming out of the NIH, one for transplant, I believe, one with an autoimmunity that's going to be formally looking at boosters. So, you know, ears to the ground on that. Swap
2: I know you're publishing on this. Any additional thoughts on this, uh, this topic?
0: Yeah. So the third dose data, of course, from France shows that it goes up from forty to sixty-eight percent or so. Uh, the other That's solid organ yeah.
2: transplant. Or specifically organ
0: transplant. Okay. Yes, solid organ transplant. Apart from the immunosuppressions that Don and Al mentioned, belatacept is is horrible. It's like any. There are two studies, three studies with belatacept, and if you are on belatacept, it's like zero. Uh, the, the response rate is close to zero percent. So it seems like, which is interesting because it's a immunosuppressant. It seems pretty mm-hmm. not that mm-hmm. fantastic. But somehow whatever it does immunologically, co-stimulation. Okay. Exactly, co-stimulation <laughs> is so important. <laughs> Apparently that stuff's important. Yeah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who thunk it, right? Okay. Exactly. The stuff that I would like to see is not just the the booster, but uh, mix and match, right? Getting one mRNA and one adenovirus or whatever. Something like that would that a good draw in this situation. Again, I hope uh, there are trials coming out.
2: Great secretion, Alfred. Nine, what
0: do you got?
3: So my wife and I recently watched In the Heights, which is the movie adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical that was on Broadway, I think, now 12 years ago or so so i know there's been controversy over the casting we still enjoyed it it took us three days to watch it which gives you a little window Uh, how how long is this it's about two and a half hours well it's a a movie it's about two and a half hours which gives you a window into how much free time we have after our kids go to bed every night so it's great it's uh hbo max uh, and what's the controversy
2: on the casting what they do
3: so it's it's Largely based on a uh, predominantly Dominican neighborhood in upper Manhattan. And there was controversy over the color of people's skin where there wasn't enough black and brown individuals uh, that were cast in the play or the, the movie.
2: Okay. Okay. But it's a hard recommend from you. Regardless oh, of the controversy, you think it was excellent. Absolutely recommend. I,
1: I okay. would second that. It's a fantastic movie and the show is fantastic and the soundtrack is fantastic. And I have sung that soundtrack going home every day for the last like two weeks. Okay, Josh, do you have a different tip. I know that I I try to basically go with Nyan's like after the kids go to sleep recommendations. If you're looking for a movie to watch with the kids, we really love The Mitchells vs. The Machines, which is available on Netflix. Our son is just turned seven, so it's totally age-appropriate for him. But it's this great like self-discovery family road trip facing off against iPhones that are taking over the world and launching us all into space movie. Awesome animation. Really fun. Uh... Hard recommend.
2: Okay.
6: Done. So my last week has been uh, consumed by a new puppy that we adopted Breed. from a. <laughs> oh, she's a mutt, the best kind. So she was uh, she came from prison. She was in this paws behind bars program. What highly recommended. What
2: pa- uh, What is this? What do, do your dog, Your dogs a criminal. <laughs> so
6: she was she was trained. We decided we couldn't deal with like a little little puppy. So she's about seven months old. And she spent four weeks with an inmate learning basic behavior like potty training, crate training. It's the best thing ever. And apparently there are these kind of programs all over the country. So if you're a busy nephrologist or rheumatologist that wants a puppy, look at adoption programs in your area that involve prison training. Everyone wins.
3: I'm sorry, the you inmate a- is training the dog?
6: Yeah. So she was, <laughs> she was being trained by an inmate for the last four weeks and then
2: graduated,
6: (laughs) graduated from the program. Her name's Amelia. She's a lab mix. She's like a 60 pound puppy at seven months. So
2: that's going to work out well. Yeah.
6: (laughs) Yeah. So she's no, she's, she's great. So anyway, shout out for, for rescue dogs.
2: So uh, my tubular secretion is this Flozinator pin. For the last six months or so, anybody who prescribes SGLT2 inhibitors and is an, an advocate for this breakthrough class of medications, we're calling ourselves Flozinators. And so we you now can uh, declare yourself publicly as a Flozinator either through a lapel pin or through a coffee mug. And we had a discussion tonight in my family whether lapel pin was sexist, but the consensus was since both men and women doctors wear white coats, lapel pin is not sexist, that it's it's an equal opportunity op- option, but lapel pins are available now. Go to flozenator.com and order your lapel pin or coffee mug or t-shirt. It's a very cool design. It has a little picture of a heart and a little kidney because it's both cardioprotective and nephroprotective. Okay, thank you everybody.